The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. We are going to be in Hebrews chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, you can open up there. I've titled this message, We Are Pilgrims, Not Tourists. We are pilgrims, not tourists. As we take a look at this passage from the book of Hebrews. We're going to pick it up in verse 7 and read through verse 12. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. We are pilgrims, not tourists. There are three stopping points that we're going to take a look at, which is insane. We never have three points like this in a sermon. But we have three points that we're going to be considering from our text today. From verses 7 through 8, For those of you who keep notes, keep a soft heart in the present. Keep a soft heart in the present. From verses 9 to 11, have a focused heart for the long journey. Have a focused heart for the long journey. And from verse 12, have a faithful heart to the end. Have a faithful heart to the end from verse 12. In Eugene Peterson's book, Long Obedience in the Same Direction, he masterfully uses the Psalms of Ascent to describe the life of discipleship. His reasoning for that psalm uh, and his use of it is that when the pilgrims made their way up to Jerusalem, Jerusalem sat on this hill. And so no matter what side you approached from, you sort of were climbing this hill. It was a long, arduous walk to the top of the hill. And so Peterson imagined the pilgrim making his way, singing the words of each of these psalms, and saw them in them a description of all the components necessary for a growing life of faith. And this is, these are the psalms that the Hebrews sang on their way to Jerusalem whenever they came to celebrate the feasts. Now, early in the book, he makes this observation and gives the reasoning for the title of the book. Again, the book is Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Now, th- this quote is long, so you- you'll have to bear with me just a little bit. So, Tune in just a little bit. I'm going to read to you this quote, but I promise you, it'll be worth our consideration this morning. He says this, One aspect of the world that I have been able to identify as harmful to Christians is the assumption that anything worthwhile can be acquired at once. We assume that if something can be done at all, it can be done quickly and efficiently. Our attention spans have been conditioned by 30-second commercials. Our sense of reality has been flattened by 30-page abridgments. It is not difficult in such a world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. It is terribly difficult to sustain the interest. Millions of people in our culture make decisions for Christ, but there is a dreadful attrition rate. Many claim to have been born again, but the evidence for mature Christian discipleship is slim. In our kind of culture, anything 
Even news about God can be sold if it's packaged freshly. But when it loses its novelty, it goes in the garbage heap. There's a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. Little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. Religion in our time has been captured by the tourist mindset. Religion is understood as a visit to an attractive site to be made when we have adequate leisure. For some, it is a weekly jaunt to church, and for others, it's occasional visits to special services. Some with a bent for religious entertainment and sacred diversion plan their lives around special events like retreats, rallies, and conferences. We go to see a new personality, to hear a new truth, to get a new experience, and so somehow expand our otherwise humdrum lives. The religious life is defined at the latest and the newest. The newest Zen, faith healing, human potential, parapsychology, successful living, choreography in the chancel, or even Armageddon. We'll try anything until something else comes along. Everyone is in a hurry. The persons whom I lead in worship, among whom I counsel, visit, pray, preach, and teach, they want shortcuts. They want me to help them fill out the form that will get them instant credit in eternity. They are impatient for results. They have adopted the lifestyle of a tourist and only want the high points. But a pastor is not a tour guide. I have no interest in telling apocryphal religious stories at and around dubiously identified sacred sites. The Christian life cannot mature under such conditions and in such ways. Peterson then goes on to make this contrasting distinction to the tourist mindset. This is what he says. In going against the stream of the world's ways, There are two biblical designations for the people of faith that are extremely useful. The first one is disciple, the Greek word mathetes. It says that we are people who spend our lives apprenticed to our master, Jesus Christ. We are in a growing learning relationship always. A disciple is a learner, but not in the academic setting of the schoolroom. Rather, at the work site of the craftsman. We do not acquire information about God, but skills in faith. The second is pilgrim. Pilgrim tells us that we are people who spend our lives going someplace. Going to God. And whose path for getting there is the way, Jesus Christ. Peterson's words stand in contrast to the appetites of the average Westerner. We are pilgrims. We're not tourists. We are disciples and apprentices not pupils consuming information. And the life that we live is a long journey to God himself. It is, in the words of Peterson, a long obedience in the same direction. Now, in our passage today, the author of Hebrews is saying something like that to the audience that he writes to as well. It's an exhortation. It's an an encouragement to long obedience in the same direction. Now, previous to the passage that we opened up with and that we read together, the author has made the case that though God has used angels and Moses as messengers to establish the old covenant, he has finally now sent his son to establish the new covenant. 
And after establishing that the glory of Jesus is greater than that of angels in chapter 1, his audience is giving a warning in chapter 2 in the first four verses. And the warning is that if God disciplined the Israelites for not obeying the, the message brought by angels, what should we expect if we disobey the message of the gospel that was brought by his very own son? And the author is now going to use that same type of logic in reference to Moses. And in our passage today, he quotes Psalm chapter 95, verses 7 through 11. The majority of our text today is a quote from those verses. And he's doing this to demonstrate that the history of Israel stands as a warning to these Hebrew Christians to refuse to go back. The temptation for these Messianic Hebrews, that is, Jewish followers of Jesus, is not an issue of going back to Egypt, but back to the old covenant way of relating to God. So let's, let's work our way through the text together and let's think about its implications for our lives. In verses 7 through 8, the point being that we should keep a soft heart in the present. Keep a soft heart in the present. Verse 7 says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. The author now begins this section with the conjunctive adverb, therefore, to connect his readers to previous logic that he's used. You could say it this way. In light of the fact that Jesus is greater than Moses, deserving of more glory than Moses, we are encouraged to hold fast to him. The Holy Spirit gives us this admonition from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts the way the Israelites did in the desert. Now, there are a few things for us to consider in this section in order to keep from having a hard heart, the very thing he's warning about. In order to keep a soft heart, first of all, we must respond to God as he speaks. We have to respond to him as he's speaking. This is a relationship. In the same way that the children of Israel were led out of Egypt, and saved from their slavery, the Hebrew Christians that the author is writing to here in the text have been saved as well. However, God did not simply want to deliver the Israelites from slavery and then let them go on living independently of him. No, it was always his intention that he would be their God in their midst and for them to be his people. He didn't just want to deliver them. He wanted to continue to live in partnership with them and to lead them. God desired to lead them into all that he had promised. And not by coercion, not by force, not by God slapping them around or making them do it or, or, or corralling them in some way. Rather, he wanted to lead them by trust. He would speak, and in faith, they would follow. Why? Well, based on his trustworthiness. The trustworthiness that he had already exhibited to them in delivering them from Egypt and providing for them miraculously in the first place. And so it is with the Christian. We're not simply saved from hell. We are saved into the kingdom of God. We are called into all that God has prepared. We as his people and he in our midst. A partnership. Something that looks more like a, a loving marriage than simply slavery. He speaks. We listen. And we respond then in loving obedience. We're saved into a relationship with the living God. 
And life is found there. Life is found in, in, in relating to God, in conversing with God, in, in listening to God. We're not merely given a rule book. We're, we're given His indwelling presence by the Holy Spirit. That the, the voice of God, the heart of God, the presence and power of God dwelling in us. And so the author of Hebrews says, quoting the psalm, today, if you, sitting here, right now in this sanctuary, or gathering with us online, or in the overflow, if you hear the voice of God today, respond. Respond to it. Talk to him. Give him your heart. Converse with him. Wrestle with him if you need to. But do that with him. The second thing we must do in order to keep a soft heart is we must resist the temptation to go backward. We must resist the temptation to go backward. You see, for the Israelites in the desert, every new moment of difficulty presented a choice. They could either cry out to God and trust Him to lead and to provide, or they could complain against God and accuse Him of being unloving, uncaring, unconcerned about their predicament. They could move through the desert in faith and in dependence upon God, or they could harden their hearts against God and just wish that He would leave them alone and let them go back to their slavery. And, and this is the struggle that you hear again and again in the books of Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. God had delivered them, but they had hardened their hearts against Him. No matter how miraculous the provision was from God, they continued to harden their hearts against Him. Matter of fact, would, would you do this with me? Would you think through the history of Israel, the, the moments like this that pop up in Scripture. If, if you want to put your ribbon right here in Hebrews 3, and then just turn with me briefly over to Exodus chapter 14 while I give you a little bit of backstory. In Exodus chapters 1, 2, and 3, Moses is given this call from God. God meets with Moses in the burning bush and calls him to deliver his people. He says, their suffering has come up before me. I've heard their cries and I'm responding to them. And so in chapter 4, verse 31, Moses initially comes to the elders with news of deliverance from Yahweh. And their immediate response in that moment is to worship God. They hear God cares about us and, and He wants to deliver us. And, and so and they respond in worship. God cares about our suffering here. One chapter later, Pharaoh has said, oh, you guys want to be delivered after Moses visited him? You guys want to be set free? How about this? How about you make bricks without straw? And so having to make bricks without straw, when Moses comes back around to the people of God, they immediately start complaining that he has made life harder. He says, they say to him, you've made us stink to Pharaoh. So how does God respond? Well, in the very next chapter, in Exodus chapter 6, verse 9, God promises deliverance through Moses once again. But we're told in verse 9, but the people did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So God sends Moses. They're like, yay! God, goes, God uses Moses to go tell Pharaoh, and they're like, boo! Right? And so Moses comes back to them. He says, hey, listen, God is going to deliver you. And they're like, we don't know what to do about this. We don't, we don't really trust you or believe you. All we know is suffering. How does God respond to that? He perseveres anyway. He continues to demonstrate his faithfulness. And in Exodus chapter 7 through 12, God makes good on his promises and he delivers them through the ten plagues. 
He didn't manifest his presence among them by a pillar of fire by night and a cloud over them by the day, and he is leading them out of their slavery towards the promised land. When we get to Exodus chapter 14, what we discover is that the Israelites are at the Red Sea, and they're, they're gathered at the Red Sea, Stuck between two rocks, Pyahiroth and Migdal, with their backs against the Red Sea. And Pharaoh is now charging down on them. The chariots are bearing down on them. And how do the Israelites respond in that moment? With no trust in God at all. Check it out in verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. What an accusation. But how does God respond? He does the miraculous. He parts the Red Sea. The people walk across on dry land. When they get to the other side in the very next chapter, in chapter 15, we see that They break out in spontaneous worship and singing and dancing. The ladies, led by Miriam, go full Pentecostal. They somehow come out with tambourines and start dancing around singing praises to God. You should see Kathy do that. She's amazing. When the spirit really stirs her, the tambourine is coming out. Listen, they begin worshiping God. However, in the very same chapter that they offer up this worship to God, they take a three-day trip down out into the desert. They're without water for three days. They finally find some water, and they find out that the water is bitter. Upon discovering that the, the, the spring that they want to drink from is bitter, what is their immediate response? Flip over to, uh, to chapter 15, beginning at verse 24. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. And there the Lord made a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. How does God respond to their grumbling and unbelief? With grace, with patience with mercy. A few weeks later, and only a few verses later in our text, they again do not respond with trust to God. Check out chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So this time they're not thirsty, but they're hungry. And in the face of their hunger, the first thought is, oh, I wish God would have killed us in Egypt. Moses warns them, He tells them all the way down in verse 8, if you take a look there, it says, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against Him. What are we? 
your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. So the, the Lord makes this promise. Within 24 hours, you're going to have bread and you're going to have meat. I'm going to feed you. And then Moses warns him and he says, listen, you need to understand something. You're not just grumbling against Moses and Aaron here. You are actually grumbling against God. Take note of this. You are grumbling against God and against his authority. Nevertheless, how does God respond? He responds by miraculously, patiently, lovingly providing for them. One chapter later, the people are without water again. Look how they respond in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 17. And all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? I love Moses' response here. Verse 4. What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. They're getting ready to kill the guy that just caused them to leave Egypt in the first place. There's already been miraculous provision after miraculous provision. And now they're ready to to kill Moses. And so how does God respond? With patience and love and grace. He gives Moses instruction for how to get them water at the direction of the Lord. Moses strikes the rock at Horeb and water flows out with enough provision for all of Israel. The lack of trust is so prominent, though, in the mind of Moses that in verse 7, he calls the place Masa and Meribah because the people were questioning at the end of verse 7, is the Lord among us or not? What do you mean, is the Lord among us? Haven't you seen that the Lord is among you? Haven't you seen his goodness and his patience and his love and his kindness? Within a couple of chapters, the Israelites find themselves at Mount Sinai. And Moses brings down the law. And after returning up to the mountain to meet with the Lord for further instruction, the Israelites get restless. And by the time you get to chapter 32, they start complaining that Moses has been gone for far too long. Now listen to this. Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. The glory of the Lord is covering Mount Sinai. Anything that touches the mountain will die. The top of the mountain is on fire. And in the presence of God, what do the people do? They take off all of their gold. They cast it into the form of a bull, a golden calf. And they fall down and they begin worshiping, saying, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. This is a dark moment for Israel. They begin worshiping an Egyptian god or idol, as though it is this idol that led them out of Egypt. God is so hurt by this that he tells Moses to step out of the way so that he can wipe them out and start over with just Moses. Moses then intercedes, and God holds his judgment back. And again, and again, and again, and again, and again, this happens throughout the book of Exodus, on into Numbers, and then it's rehearsed again in Deuteronomy. Again and again, on the journey between the land of Egypt and the land of promise, 
the people of God rebel no matter how good God is to them. Even Moses' own family, Miriam and Aaron, launch a rebellion against the leadership of God. And yet God patiently pardons, forgives, and endures their lack of trust. Finally, they make their way through the desert. They get to the promised land. They send out 12 spies to go and spy out the land. It's a wonderful occasion. The spies are gone for 40 days. When they return, they tell the people that it's just like God said that it is. It's a land that is flowing with milk and honey. And the the fruit is, is amazing in this place. But 10 of the spies say that there is no way that they they can actually live there, though, due to the giants and the fierce people groups that live there. Flip over just to Numbers 14. Would you just take a look at that with me? Numbers 14. So the ten spies give their evil report. And in Numbers 14, let's see how the people respond. The first four verses. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, the whole congregation, and said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. The two spies that did trust the Lord, that brought back the good report of the land, begin to intercede with the people or to intervene with the people. They played with him like, don't don't give up on trusting God. We're right here at the promised land. Please, Please don't do this. How did the people respond? They gather up stones to kill Caleb and Joshua. They refuse to trust. They still do not trust the Lord. They are right at the door of the promised land. And they refuse to trust. Listen to to the heartache of God for his people. Check out verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Do you hear God's heart in that? I just don't get it. After everything, The rock, the Red Sea, the ten plagues, bread from heaven every morning, quail in the evening. How can we get this far and you still despise me? In verse 12, he promises judgment. I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them and I will make of you a great nation, greater and mightier than they. Once again, God threatens to wipe them out and... Once again, Moses intercedes. He makes his pleading based upon the character of God. In verses 17 through 23, God, you said your name was gracious and full of compassion and that you forgive people. Lord, you said that that's what you're like. So so do that. Be gracious right now. Pardon your people once again. And so... In verse 20, the Lord says, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly, note this phrase right here, as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times have not, and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despise me shall see it. 
He goes on to say in verse 27, how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumbled against me, and say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do unto you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. Remember what they said? Be better that we died in the wilderness. And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones who you said would become a prey, I will bring in and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. God says, as I live, what you've said about me will be your judgment. You'll get exactly what your hardened hearts believed about me all along. Here's the point. A good start is not the same as a faithful finish. Back to Hebrews in our passage today, using Psalm 95, the author of Hebrews exhorts his people. And he says to them, don't let what happened to the Israelites happen to you. Fight. Fight against the temptation to go backward. Hold fast to Jesus. Press on. All that God has promised is attached to trusting Him to lead you. Don't go back. And the author now continues his reference to Psalm 95, picking it up in verse 9. Back to where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall, they shall not enter my rest. Notice the second reference to the heart in this passage. And it says that the problem with the Israelites was not the sufficiency of God to lead them, but the fact that their hardened Hearts always go astray and that they have not known my ways. You see, every time that the Israelites chose to reject the leadership of God, as he was trying to lead them into the newness of what was in front of them, it was not only doing damage to their relationship with God, but it was also doing damage to their own hearts. It was hardening their hearts. It was leading them astray from God and it was hardening their hearts. Instead of learning God's ways, they were developing ruts in their own rebellious ways. It's sort of like a, a, a neuroplasticity of the soul. The more they practiced the rebellion, the easier it became. They are they are becoming practiced in their hardness of heart. And instead of God leading his people through their willing submission to him, God is having to fight with them every step of the way. And finally, God just says, okay, I'll give you what you want. Not always going to fight with you. And the warning from the author of Hebrews to his audience in this is clear. The author is now writing to them to tell them to stay focused on following God into all that he has promised. Stay focused. Don't let their hearts stray. 
Don't wander away from the living God who is still in this moment, in this generation, right now living and present among his people. Don't let your heart go astray. Learn the ways of God. I love what Ken Townsend said this last week in our Tuesday morning sermon preview, our our exegetical study. He reminded me of Proverbs 4.23, where we're encouraged in that proverb, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. A heart that goes astray, guys, is a dangerous thing. A heart that is easily led astray, that becomes practiced in rebellion, is a dangerous thing. Listen, it is possible for the seed of the gospel gospel to be planted in the heart of an individual and then to bear no fruit due to the hardness of their heart. It is possible for someone to turn away from trusting the gospel As a result of trials, it is possible for the cares of the world and the lust of other things to choke out the life of the gospel that is in the hearts of his people. Hearts that have grown hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And the end result is the same as the Israelites. The living God who loves us and wants to lead us finally says, I can't keep fighting with you. I I guess you can have what you determined all along. You will never enter the rest and the victory that I promised you. What a stark warning. The author finishes his quote of the psalm and then gives a final application where he encourages his people to have a faithful heart to the end. Verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The the, the last exhortation is the author's plea to the people that he loves. Notice what he says there. He says, take care, brothers. This means that for the author, he considers his audience, the people he's writing to, family. He loves them. He cares deeply for them. People that he longs to see finish their faith race well. And he says, take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. There are two things it seems that the author has in view for his audience in his final exhortation from these verses. The first thing is a call to examine their hearts. And the second thing is a call to endure to the end. A call to examine their hearts. On the one hand, this is a call to examine their hearts. He's encouraging them to examine whether or not they are currently functioning from a place of evil-hearted unbelief and rebellion against God, or whether or not they are easily led by him, to assess whether they are behaving like the Israelites and rejecting God's leadership in their lives. Quick question. What about you? Are you resisting the leadership of God as he seeks to lead you into all that he has promised? Is there trial or pain that the enemy is using to whisper lies into your ear saying that God is not good, that he's not worthy of following, that it just isn't worth it? Don't listen to the lies. Reject them out of hand. Or is your evil heart saying, if God won't give me what I want, when I want it, then I'll just do things my own way. I'll do life without God because He doesn't give me what I want. This call 
to examine the heart is an important one for all of us to consider. Beware. That practiced behavior of rebelling against God, of hardening your heart, can become a deep-rooted pattern. Be honest about what happens in your heart. You know, Paul, Pastor Paul, said something that really stuck with me. As a life skill, I'm going to need to continue to hone and get better and better at over the course of my life. Strangely enough, as Paul was talking, it came in the form of analogy about hiking in the woods. He said, you know, when I'm in the mountains and I get disoriented on the trail, get off trail, you, know, you have the map in front of you and you're just like, this map is wrong. That mountain is not supposed to be there. And this is, no, it's not the map. It's me. I'm out of place. And this is what he said. I have to know that I'm on the right path and know who God really is. It will take humility to recognize when I have strayed. It will take humility for me to be able to get back on track. An important important part of our assessment is the humility that it takes to recognize when we are straying from the living God. If you recognize that you're off course, if you recognize that your heart is hardened, run to Jesus. Plead with him. Repent. Call out to him. Say, God, I don't want to have this hardness of heart. I want to let go of my reasons. I want to trust that you're good. I want to see you and be led by you. God, please. Change this heart into heart by the power of your spirit. Call out to him. Guys, this is why he died on the cross. So that you could come to him again and again and receive grace. I love what it says in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 17. It says, for the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. Listen, the only difference between a righteous man and a wicked person is that the righteous person gets up after falling. The fool stays in their sin. They both fall, but the wicked person refuses to take the hand of the Savior to let him lead them again. The second thing to take note of in this final passage, this final verse, is that it's a call to endure to the end. The journey of the pilgrim is long obedience in the same direction. We are going to have to walk this thing out over a lifetime. The life of a disciple is a lifelong apprenticeship to Jesus. It is growing in the likeness of Christ until the end. Till we're dead. Or until Jesus comes back, whichever comes first. But whenever the end is, that's how long we have to walk it out. It's a marathon, it's not a sprint. And we, we see lots of people that are gathered up in the energy and the emotionalism of the church and they find themselves very excited about things and then they, they crash and burn within a few short years. A long-term plan for your discipleship is essential to your well-being. It's going to take patience. It's going to take staying focused. And so you're going to have to settle in. You're going to have to stay focused. I'm going to have to keep putting one foot in front of the other in different seasons. Because God is leading and he's leading us closer to himself. So the encouragement from Hebrews is an encouragement to you and to me. Today, if you hear his voice, now is the time to respond. Don't let your heart become hardened by sin and unbelief. Practice obedience, long obedience in the same direction. Our endurance is attached to the person and work of Jesus, not an idea. It is attached to Jesus. 
He's the greater than Moses who is leading us into all that God has promised as his people. So we're going to have to listen for his voice. Take a hold of him by faith. And keep walking it out every day until the end. Listen to him and love him as we follow him on this long journey. Remember, we are pilgrims, not tourists. So keep a soft heart in the present. Have a focused heart for the long journey. And have a faithful heart to the end. Would you bow your heads as we pray? Father, we love you. Thank you so much for this encouragement to us. I'm reminded of what a loving parent you are. When you see one of your loved ones running into danger, that you call out to them. Sometimes you call out with a loud voice. Right now here in the sanctuary, I recognize that there will be people from all different levels of maturity in their own discipleship, all different places in their own walk and experience with you, coming from different trials. Right now, Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would awaken the hearts of those who you long to hear this word right now. You would call them back to yourself, that you would encourage and strengthen them. The Father, this would be the moment where you as a loving Father draw them back again. That you show them where they are erring or hardening themselves, rebelling against you. For those who are doing well right now, Lord, may we look around and see those who are in danger around us with the same love and grace and patience come alongside of those who are struggling. That the whole body might be strengthened by the work of your spirit through one another. We ask this in the name and for the glory of Jesus. Amen.